0: I am so excited for this week's episode. Our guest today is Michael Pollan. Since the 2018 publication of his New York Times bestseller, How to Change Your Mind, Michael's work on psychedelics has steered the national conversation on the medical potential and stigmas surrounding some of the most powerful naturally derived drugs. He furthers the discussion in his new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, and his Netflix series, how to change your mind.
1: Could psychedelics be a viable treatment for ADHD? Like countless other people, I believe that psychedelics have played a huge role in my mental and emotional well-being.
2: After this moral panic that hits the culture around 1965, um, nobody studies it anymore. I suffer from a form of a seasonal affective mood disorder. Basically, when the weather's outside, I would feel down. So if it was cloudy, miserable, raining. I just don't really get enough light, and there's a form of depression that develops
1: because of that. And when you start taking psychedelic mushrooms, at least when I started, um, it was one of the most life-changing experiences I have ever had. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I rise in support of Amendment 23 to create a grant program for psychedelic treatment for PTSD. Now that may come as a shock to many, and I say good. Good because to be frank, we need new ideas because it seems we are losing the battle with veteran suicide.
2: Hi, I'm Michael Pollan. I'm a writer, a journalist, and I am passionate about two things. One is about reforming the food system and improving the American diet, and the other is about fighting for recognition of the potential of psychedelics to help treat mental illness. Sorry, not sorry.
0: So, Michael, I am so thrilled that you are here today with us on this show. Would you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about you? And I don't know if you could pinpoint one moment, but what sparked your interest in psychedelics?
2: Yeah, so I've been writing as a journalist about the human engagement with the natural world for a long time. Most of my writing grew out of my gardening. I'm a passionate gardener. And I realized that in the garden, you could you had this wonderful microcosm of our relationship with other species, plants especially, but also critters. And along the way, I gave a lot of thought to the different ways in which we use plants. Some are obvious, beauty and nutrition, and some are less obvious. And one of those that I've been thinking about for quite a long time is that we use plants to change consciousness. That's a very peculiar thing, that why is it that most humans, and this is a universal trait, this drive to change consciousness, why are we not satisfied with everyday normal consciousness? Why do we look to vary it in this way? And we do it multiple ways, of course, not just through plants. We do it with meditation, with fasting, with extreme sports. Kids do it by getting dizzy, by spinning it just seems to be this fundamental human drive, sex or food. So I've had a long interest in that. And I wrote a book, actually, I've been writing about since the 90s. I wrote a piece on growing my own opium in 1997 in my garden. And what was a story that turned out to be a parable of the drug war. And it got very messy, but initially it began as this idea that I could take these seeds that were legally available and grow opium poppies, which by the way, are one of the most beautiful plants that there are at every stage, whether it's leaf, flower, or seed pod. And I could make this tea, this gently narcotic tea uh, from it. And then I wrote a piece on cannabis when I wrote Botany Desire. So this is an ongoing interest of mine, but psychedelics wasn't part of my interest until just a few years ago, when I started hearing about this research going on, really surprising research, the idea that you would give a high dose of psilocybin, which is the chemical in magic mushrooms, to people struggling with a cancer diagnosis, any of them terminal, and that this would somehow give them an experience, a rich spiritual experience that would change their attitudes toward their cancer and toward their death. And that really pricked my curiosity and led to a piece that I wrote for The New Yorker called The Trip Treatment, which in turn led to the book, How to Change Your Mind, and an immersion in this area of psychedelic therapy for the last seven years now. I've been writing in this area.
0: You did a pretty good job defining psychedelics, but I'm interested to know where we look to alter our states of consciousness. What do you think that is?
2: A lot of motivations. I mean, it must be adaptive, first of all, or evolution would have done away with the drug takers because people who take drugs are at risk, obvious risk of overdose, but they're also at risk of accidents. They're more vulnerable to attack. They're not in control of their faculties. So there's risk involved, but there must be some countervailing benefit. And I think there are several. One, an obvious one is pain relief. We've used opiates for 6,000 years to relieve pain. Cannabis also for thousands of years. Remember, for most of history, medicine doctors didn't heal you. They didn't have cures. They would try to relieve your pain and make you more comfortable. And plant drugs were the way to do it. So that's one thing. I think another thing is boredom. And I think that many people... In this world, and especially in the past, when there was not electronic entertainment and easy communication, lived pretty monotonous lives. And there was a desire to vary that life. And another, I think, that's really important is we have a spiritual drive. For most of their history, psychedelic substances have been exclusively used within a religious setting. They were used to channel life-changing religious initiation and communion with the divine through intricate ceremonies including drama, music, and dance. These initiations provided a revelation about the essence of human existence and the meaning of life we really want to connect with something bigger than ourselves. Religions pop up all over the world, and it may well be that psychedelic compounds plant the seed of the religious impulse in people. And there is some interesting evidence that Several different religions had at their origins somebody's psychedelic experience, whether through a plant drug or a spontaneous mystical experience or a fast, a vision quest, some kind of altered state, transcendental state that suggested to that person that there was a beyond, an unseen realm, a divine. And so To the extent that the religious impulse has been very important to our species and is itself very useful for social cohesion and all sorts of things, you know, and psychedelics may have contributed to that. The last thing I would say they're important for is that they seem to help nudge individuals out of rut and that most of us, as we get older, find ourselves in deeper and deeper grooves that aren't necessarily helpful. They lead to a kind of destructive rumination and the ability of plant medicines to just shake things up for the individual or even for the group may be a positive, may lead to change. We have all these cases of great scientists and artists who had some sort of revelation on psychedelics that led to real advances in cultural evolution. And I'm not saying that always happens. I think nine out of 10 of the insights you have on psychedelics are probably not particularly profound. They may be helpful to you, but discovering the importance of gratitude or love is not going to be earth-shaking. But there have been moments of encounter between certain people and certain molecules produced by plants that have changed the world. I see drugs and psychedelics in particular as forces that contribute to change in the cultural realm and some of that change is very positive so i think they're an important part of the human experience
0: I think we all have that or had that. I remember very distinctly being a young child and looking up at the sky at night and seeing the stars and having this sense of awe and wonder. And I think that as human beings, we need that awe and wonder in order to evolve, in order to find new ways of existing in life. And so I think that's so much of the drive. You mentioned a little bit about the rut. You talk about that and how to change your mind as a sled coming down a mountain.
2: Well, one wonderful metaphor that one of the neuroscientists studying psychedelics uh, offered to me when I asked, how did he think they worked? What was their significance? He said, I picture the mind as a hill, snow-covered hill, and your thoughts as sleds going down that hill. And over time, the sled's dig deeper and deeper grooves, and it becomes very difficult to go down the hill without falling into those grooves. Your path is predetermined. What psychedelics do, metaphorically, is they represent a snowfall, fresh snow that fills all the grooves. And suddenly you can go down the hill on a new path. You can chart any path you want. It opens up a kind of plasticity, a flexibility that the mind lax as we get older. And I think that's a very good way to understand it. And I think that's enormously valuable. And that's one of the reasons I mention I say in How to Change Your Mind, kind of offhand and somewhat unfair, that psychedelics may be wasted on the young. And that as we age is when we need to be shaken up like that. And they do that. They've certainly done that in my life. So that's a very useful tool for us to have. It's a powerful tool. It has to be used carefully. There certainly are risks associated with it. But it's, I think we're blessed to have it.
0: Yeah, I think we should say that the only way for many people to experience the medications that you discuss in your books and in your Netflix series is to break the law. And I know that that is changing, and I think it needs to change. But did that worry you while you were writing? And have there been any repercussions?
2: There have been no legal repercussions, knock on wood. I was certainly concerned about it. And I took steps to make my accounts of my own experiences not uh, usable as confessions. And there are things that you can do. You know, if you disguise the jurisdiction, the state where you had an experience and you are a little vague about when it happened, it's very difficult to use that as evidence. I should say that people messing around with psychedelics are not a big target of the drug war. The drug war is very racist, and white people fooling around with psychedelics are not likely to go to jail for it, but black people using many drugs are, and that's, you know, deeply unjust. I have never known a dead man who gets himself in more than Richard Nixon.
1: I just want to say that for the record. Check out the latest on Tricky McDick.
2: Forbes reports on a remark by a former Nixon aide hinting that the war on drugs had a hidden purpose, that President Nixon saw the drug crackdown as a way to arrest blacks and anti-war protesters. Ehrlichman also claimed that the White House knew they were lying about drugs. But I think that the risks that we face as middle class white people is not that great. That doesn't please me to say, and it's not exactly a comfort.
0: This is another example of the systemic racism.
2: Exactly. And look, the drug war is very racist. And the mass incarceration obviously has involved a disproportionate number of Black people. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that many African-Americans are reluctant to get involved with psychedelics, that the risk for them to engage with illegal activity around drugs is much greater. And then there's also the fact that many Black Americans don't feel physically safe in their everyday life. And you have to feel physically safe to have a successful trip because you're surrendering your control of your environment, of your body. And that's a big step. And you're not going to do that unless you feel in a very comfortable place. I've talked to many African-Americans about psychedelics and why the psychedelic world has been very white. Those themes keep coming up. And I'm hoping it's changing because I think psychedelics have an enormous potential to address racial trauma along with every other kind of trauma. And it may be that once these substances are FDA approved, which is close to happening in the case of MDMA, it's only a year or two away, and psilocybin a few years after that, that when that risk is removed, hopefully access will expand.
0: The opportunity to make these medications available to everyone and to help everyone is very important. And as part of healthcare justice at this point, which is a major issue in this country, your zip code should not dictate what kind of treatment you get.
2: Or your life expectancy.
0: Exactly. So in the series, you cover four main psychedelic compounds, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and mescaline. And we'll talk about each one individually. But first, what was it about these four in particular that made them your focus?
2: Yeah, I mean, there were other substances we didn't do. DMT, ayahuasca, ketamine. But we wanted to do four. That's what Netflix wanted. It was a four-part series. And each of these substances let us address a whole different complex of subject matter and material. So with LSD, that is the most famous psychedelic, and it is the one with this very rich 20th century history. And it was really what allowed us to do the social history of psychedelics, how they came and changed America during the 60s, what went wrong in, during that period. And there, was, there is some therapeutic applications there, but that episode is largely about social history and the invention of LSD, which is a great story. Albert Hoffman, this Swiss chemist, accidentally stumbles on LSD in the 30s, doesn't know what he has till the 40s, takes the first acid trip in history, which we dramatize with an animated sequence that's pretty amazing. So that's what we did in the LSD episode. Psilocybin is where we really delve into the therapeutic research, how psilocybin is being used to treat depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, addiction, and we meet a lot of patients in that episode. There's some history. There's the history of the Renaissance. Basically, psychedelics, there was a backlash in the late 60s, and psychedelics basically disappeared as a subject of research. After this incredibly fertile period in the 50s and early 60s, I don't think people realize that when you talk about psychedelics, our picture is a 60s phenomenon. But in fact, it's a 50s phenomenon. Even the word psychedelic was coined in the 50s. Then after this backlash, which has to do with the drug war and President Nixon, and also just a general fear that this novel, weird compound was alienating young people from older people, causing uh, young boys to refuse to go to Vietnam, it was very destabilizing to culture in the 60s. Now, you could argue that culture needed to be destabilized in the 60s. Some people believe that. Some people believe the opposite. But the fact is, LSD was disruptive, for better and worse. So the research disappears and then starts coming back in the early 2000s.
0: But wait, you talk about the history of it being buried. Who buried the history? And was it because LSD was being sort of like used in this subculture?
2: Yeah, LSD was contributing to the rise of the counterculture without question. There was what we called then a generation gap. That was a phrase you heard a lot. It was a very weird moment because you had young people withdrawing from society and they were doing everything from inventing a new way of dress, new way of speaking, new sets of manners and mores, feminism, environmentalism, civil rights.
1: There are colonies of hippies springing up in most American cities. They all declare themselves rebels against our society, but they want to withdraw from it instead of trying to change it. It is hard to figure out what positive things they are in favor of. They like music. The word love is used by them a lot. Their diversions might seem to be harmless enough were it not for one thing. In a very aggressive and evangelical way, they praise the effect on the mind of hallucinatory drugs, particularly the drug LSD
2: it was an amazing amount of ferment going on. But what was specifically unusual about it is that young people were separating from older people. And the reason I think they did is because they were having this rite of passage called the LSD trip that most rites of passage knit society together. They're organized by the elders and the adolescents do whatever you have to do, whether it's a bar mitzvah or a vision quest, and they end up joining adult society. The LSD trip was really different. You ended up alienated from adult society, speaking in a different way, different manners and mores, and thinking for yourself. And a big mark of this generation gap was this very unusual historical phenomenon of 18-year-olds refusing when the adults told them to go off and fight in Vietnam. A bunch of them said no. Some went to jail, some went to Canada. And this was very disturbing to the powers that be. Richard Nixon in particular, President Nixon was convinced that LSD was fueling the anti-war movement. He may well have been right, and he went after it. And other people did too. California bans LSD even before the country does. In 67, Reagan, who was governor, was a sworn enemy of the counterculture and specifically of LSD. And so you get the rise of the drug war, which really starts in 1970. And that's when President Nixon signs the Controlled Substances Act, which bans cannabis, bans LSD and psilocybin. Now, it was presented to us as a public health campaign that these drugs were destroying young minds, but we've subsequently learned that Nixon's interest in the drug war was political. I quote in my book, one of his advisors, John Ehrlichman, who was his domestic policy advisor, who told a journalist in the 90s what the drug war was really about. And he said, our biggest enemies were the hippies and the blacks. And we knew if we could prohibit LSD and cannabis, that we could disrupt those communities and demonize those people. And it's hard for us to just realize what a powerful tool that gives the police. A drug crime is the easiest crime to prove. It doesn't take any fancy detective work. You find the drug on the person or in their car or in their home, you've got them. And they did. Cannabis was being widely used by lots of people. And it meant that when the cops came in, they had something. They could get you on something. And that's what filled the jails. That's what gave us mass incarceration, which gets worse in the 90s, by the way, under the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton, who raises the penalties on drug crimes, institutes of death sentence for drug kingpins and, uh, you know, three strikes rules. But the drug war gave enormous power to the government, to the police, and they still have that power by and large. I think there are signs the drug war is coming to an end, or at least fading, but all these laws are still on the books, and they're incredibly uh, draconian.
0: It really is unreal to me how it feels so obvious and it feels so and maybe it's our own hesitancy or how we are very suspicious of the pharmaceutical companies now but to me it just seems so obvious that something that can grow from the earth that could help millions of people during a really a mental health epidemic that we have would be regulated So that people can't get the thing that will help them through whatever they're going through. And I come to this from a very, you know, I have very bad anxiety. So I come to this from a very honest place. I think a lot of people come to it from a curious place and maybe the subculture place of I'm going to be naughty and learn about this. But I come from a very real place of my anxiety has been so debilitating over my lifetime that the idea that there are people who don't have the access to remedies like I do and have to struggle day in and day out without healthcare, without access to mental health experts, without plants that might help is just, it's mind boggling to me. And it's almost like a sick form of torture that people are regulating something that could be so
1: helpful.
2: Yeah. And it's also relatively harmless. I think that One of the surprising things about the classic psychedelics like psilocybin, like LSD, is that these are not toxic to your body. There's no lethal dose of either. And they're also not habit-forming. People don't get addicted to these drugs. They do have risks. There's psychological risks. People have terrifying experiences. People at risk for schizophrenia should stay away and other psychoses. But I agree with you. I think that for something you can grow in your garden, whether it's cannabis or psilocybin or some other psychoactive plant, who's to say you can't? Why does the government have an interest in what you do in your garden? So I have a real problem with that. And one of the things that's sprouted up in the last few years is the decriminalized nature movement, which I think is a very interesting movement. And it has a very simple idea behind it, which is that. Plants can't be criminalized.
0: A big step for voters in Detroit. Yesterday, they approved a proposal that essentially decriminalizes entheogenic plants like magic mushrooms and ayahuasca. That organization also working to pass similar legislation at the state level and locally here in Grand Rapids.
2: And they have gone around the country. I think they're in 150 cities now. They've in about a dozen places. They've succeeded in changing the law. And what they do is they don't get these plants legalized. What they do is they get them decriminalized, which essentially means that once the ballot initiative passes, and this has happened in Oakland, Ann Arbor, in Washington, D.C., and a bunch of other places, it basically orders the police and the prosecutors to make prosecution of crimes involving those plants their lowest priority. It's still illegal, but the risk that anything will happen diminishes to near zero. And this movement, wherever they have put their ideas on the ballot, has succeeded. I think it's quite remarkable. They're really reframing drugs and the drug war as this matter of plants. How can a plant be illegal? Anyway, I think that's a very interesting movement. I think we've been talking a little bit about access too. And There's some exciting things happening in that area, which is that the state of Oregon last year approved a ballot initiative that next year will make guided psilocybin experiences available to anybody over 21, with or without a diagnosis. That's astonishing. It will still be a federal crime, but so far the feds have shown no interest in interfering in that process. And Colorado is about to vote this fall on a very similar initiative. So change is coming, and it's coming really fast.
0: We're starting to see legislation people should know in Congress from both parties, like working together, imagine that, that would expand trials of psychedelics, especially with psilocybin and MDMA.
2: Yeah, AOC last week introduced and got passed an amendment to a spending bill that will make more research dollars available. And last week also, Cory Booker with Rand Paul, of all people, introduced a bill that would make it easier for people with terminal diseases to get access to psychedelic therapy.
0: I think perception is so important right now in this stage of working towards accessibility and legalizing psychedelics for treatment. The one thing that I have noticed that I want to discuss is even in the clinical settings in your projects is that there's this new age ritualization of the medicines, which I love.
2: Some people are allergic to it.
0: Some people are allergic to it. And my thought is like, how do we make it so that it does feel more or less new agey and like a real science, the real science that it actually is?
2: The world of science and the world of spirituality don't necessarily have to be at their each other's throats. And one of the interesting things about psychedelic therapy is it brings the two into contact. Because you look at the universities that did the first important work with psilocybin, such as Johns Hopkins, they are very frank about the fact that it's a spiritual experience that is what heals and that some mental illnesses are spiritual conditions. And that's kind of a wild idea for science. But to just drill down on that a little bit, they find that most or two thirds of people who have this high dose psilocybin experience have what is called a mystical experience. This is something that psychologists have been measuring for a long time. People have them other ways, but it's characterized by a kind of transcendence of ego, a transcendence of space and time, a feeling of well-being verging sometimes on euphoria or ecstasy, sense that some kind of revealed knowledge of the universe has been generated by the experience. There are like eight different characteristics. Oh, and also what's called unitive consciousness. Once you transcend your ego, you have this sense of merging with something larger than yourself, which could be nature, it could be the divine, it could be the universe, it could be other people. And that's particularly powerful. I think most of us are trapped in our egos most of the time, and our egos stand between us and connection. So people who have that kind of experience, and they fill out a questionnaire, and it, and I did it, and it tells you whether you had a mystical experience or not, are the ones who gain the most from their psilocybin journey. It's the best predictor of, say, breaking an addiction, if that's your goal, or relief of your OCD, or relief of your anxiety. So I don't think mystical experience is necessarily new age. There are various kind of trappings that go with it. Even in the university trials, they serve the pill to you in a chalice, and the rooms are decorated not like any kind of treatment room you've ever been in. There's always a Buddha and a beautiful landscape and maybe sometimes a crucifix.
0: And they're wishing them well on their journey.
2: Yes, and there's this great, yeah, this wonderful language. Roland Griffith, who's one of the leading psychedelic researchers at Hopkins, will always come into the room as people are taking their drug and say, think of us as ground control and you are in a rocket and you are gonna go up into space, but we'll be keeping an eye on you from here.
1: We will begin each dosing session with a guided visualization or meditation to get people out of their monkey mind Mm -hmm. and into their body Mm -hmm. and help them to open to the experience, to say yes to whatever comes their way.
2: So you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about your rocket. And um, I think that's a very nice way to see it. There are guides who use crow feathers and crystals and altars and skins of various animals and the four corners. And they're kind of this syncretic ritual that they're borrowing from many different traditions. And some people look at that and say it's cultural appropriation. I think it's a substitute for the fact that we don't have a lot of rituals ourselves and we need to develop our own. Traditional cultures have a lot to teach us about the safe use of psychedelics. When they came into the West, beginning in the 1950s, they arrived without an instruction manual. And that's why we struggled for a long time to figure out what are these good for? Are they medicines? Or are they... For fun, some people thought initially that they gave you the experience of schizophrenia and that was interesting to people who treat schizophrenia. And then other people realized, no, it's not like that at all. It's not the mind of a madman. We ignored a very important source of knowledge, which is looking at native peoples and how they use these. And now we're looking at that and borrowing what makes sense. And one of the things you notice. If you look at, say, Native Americans who've been using psychedelics, peyote has been in use for 6,000 years. It's incredible. It's probably the oldest known psychedelic. And we now have evidence that it goes back that far. So how do they use it safely? There's always an elder involved. They almost always do it in a group setting, which is very non-Western, but I think something we need to take a look at. They never do it casually. There's always a sense of intention, purpose to it. and they always surround the experience with ritual. And I think that's super important. I think that people who use drugs in a ritual way are much less likely to get in trouble with them. Um, This goes for something like alcohol. The people who use it socially with with other people at mealtimes, in the evening, and are not drinking alone during the day are the ones who don't get into serious trouble with it. It doesn't guarantee anything, but in general, rituals are protective. Andrew Wild made this point in a book called The Natural Mind back in the 70s, a really wise book about drugs. And I think he's right. The rituals of a Native American aren't going to be right for us. We need to find our own rituals. And that's an interesting cultural project.
0: I did somatic experiencing therapy for a while, and for those that don't know, it's basically that when you watch animals in the wild, if they have a moment of complete trauma, which they have quite a bit, hunting for their food and running away from prey, there is a nervous system reboot that they do physically, where they twitch their leg or they shake their body. And I think when you think about the rituals from the indigenous people throughout the world, it's basically that kind of nervous system reboot. And I do feel that so much of psychedelics is that, and much more successful than any of the prescription medications that almost seem to calcify the brain even more so. I wonder if you worry that this imagery that sort of is the 1960s counterculture, it's serving things in a chalice, it makes it harder for lawmakers and scientists and just the general public who lives in, like, Dubuque, Iowa, to accept these compounds as legitimate medicine and science instead of just weird recreational drugs where they aren't connected. <laughs>
1: CBS News, without any flowers in its hair, is in San Francisco because this city has gained the reputation of being the hippie capital of the world. In the 1960s, a counterculture sprang up based on peace, love, and psychedelic drugs like LSD. The kids who take LSD aren't going to fight your wars. They're not going to join your corporations. Timothy Leary had an insight that if you changed yourself, it would change
2: the world and change the society.
1: Authorities quickly cracked down on the drug, fearing its alleged health effects.
2: Instant insanity.
1: Chromosome damage. It may affect your unborn children.
2: The frightening thing about LSD, of course, is that it lurks in the bloodstream like a tiger. Yeah, no, I think that there may be people that are really allergic to that and are turned off by that. And they need to find other guides who are less uh, enamored of indigenous cultures. I think there are lots of different contexts to put it in. That's just the one that we seem to have inherited. But as I say, I think we need to come up with ones that are really culturally appropriate. But it's a reminder, too, that you're not just taking a pill and that this is not a pharmacological fix. What the drug is doing is catalyzing a certain kind of experience. It is the experience that heals you. Some people call it a mystical experience. Researchers in Europe, it's interesting, who are much less into the New Age side of things and don't talk about mystical experience. They talk about ego dissolution. Now, that's kind of a Freudian psychodynamic term. But this idea that your ego goes away and then you merge with something larger, it's just a different vocabulary for the same phenomenon. I think there is something that's happening to your ego. Your ego is quieted or destroyed temporarily and good things happen because the ego locks you in. The ego is that critical voice in your head, that striving voice in your head. And egos are very useful. They get a lot done. They've been very important in your career, very important in my career, but they also stand in our way. They separate us. They distance us from nature, from other people. They tend to be selfish. They tend not to have the gratitude that we should have. And they're very instrumental. They're about getting things done. And having a break from the ego, I think, can be very therapeutic. Or getting some distance on your ego, which, of course, is part of what happens in normal psychotherapy.
0: Or just to be able to recognize your ego so that when you're living through life, you could recognize, oh, that's the ego talking. And I need to either encourage that part for this situation in life or discourage it.
2: Yeah, it's a voice you want to ignore sometimes. And one of the things that I have, and when I had an experience of like, complete ego dissolution. My ego just died during a guided psilocybin trip. Ever since uh, since I survived the death of my ego and watched it happen, I realized, oh, I'm not identical to that voice. It's one voice of many, and I don't have to listen to it. And so sometimes I just recognize, all right, that reaction, that's my ego up to his old tricks, and I'm just going to ignore it. And that's a very important lesson that I think some people get out of psychedelic experience.
0: I want to talk about MDMA. This compound was, it was an accident created by a pharmaceutical company and then ignored. And decades later, a chemist went back in and synthesized it.
2: Sasha Shulgin. Yes. who is was a great psychedelic chemist lives near me here in the Bay Area did. I mean, he's died and his wife just died actually a couple of weeks ago. And she was a partner in uh, the invention, the creation of many compound, new compounds. But probably their biggest accomplishment was discovering MDMA as a therapeutic agent because it had been invented. I forget the original purpose Merck had for it. They put it on the shelf. They never did anything with it. And then Sasha Shulgin in the Early 70s, I think it was, resynthesized it and tried it as he would with all these compounds he made. And his wife was a therapist and she tried it and she said, this compound can be very useful in psychotherapy. It is not a classic psychedelic, you do not have hallucinations typically on it. But it does some very interesting things that contribute to therapy. It lowers your activity in your amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, which allows you to approach very difficult memories without fear, and that you can take them out and look at them with this incredible clinical coolness that is very helpful in therapy. It also leads to an almost instantaneous bond between you and the therapist. There is this release of oxytocin that accompanies MDMA. This is, you know, the so-called love chemical. It's what's released between nursing mothers and their babies, and it's released during sex, and it just binds people together. It's a very powerful connection chemical, and that is released during MDMA, and that leads to this powerful transference with the therapist. And therapists will say, this is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon in terms of the progress made building trust. Now, that trust can be abused. There's a vulnerability involved in that. And there are some unscrupulous therapists who have abused that trust. It's important to understand that you have to choose a therapist very carefully. But the result is that MDMA has proven a very effective treatment for trauma, PTSD, because people can deal with their trauma in the therapeutic setting, re-experience it with less charge than they had. It used to be that every time these memories came up, they were just so full of fear and anger and uh, powerful emotions that they really couldn't deal with them. So it allows you to deal with difficult material. I think the future of MDMA is gonna be as a couples therapy agent because it allows two people to talk about the most difficult subjects imaginable without getting defensive and openly and fearlessly. And that's really important in a relationship.
0: There's also an emerging trend, at least emerging from my perspective, it might not be emerging, of people microdosing psychedelics. Can you talk a little bit about this? What is it? How does it work? Why might it be? And for who might it be beneficial for?
2: Yeah. So microdosing is the practice of taking a tiny dose of a psychedelic, like 10% of a normal dose, 10 to 20%. Studies have shown psychedelic mushrooms can treat or even cure depression, and some San Diego moms are turning to it for help.
1: It's called microdosing. It's not legal, but a North County mom admits she does it, and it works.
2: And that it's such a little amount that you shouldn't really feel it. Uh, it shouldn't. You shouldn't feel like you're tripping in any way. If you are, you're taking too much. And people do this on a regime. They'll do one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off. And many people report benefits in terms of depression, productivity, creativity. They just feel better. There's not a lot of research on microdosing. It's surprisingly difficult to do, but we haven't done the kind of double-blind controlled studies where we could really determine for sure that it's not a placebo effect. It may well be a placebo effect. Placebos are very strong in general. If I give you a sugar pill and say, this is going to help with your anxiety, it will help with your anxiety to some extent. If I give you a little bit of LSD and say, this is going to help with your anxiety, we attribute so much magic to that molecule that it's going to have a powerful placebo effect. So that may be all that's going on. We just don't know yet for sure.
0: Does it the chemical break down similar to an SSRI?
2: No. I mean, it does influence the same receptors. There is serotonin receptors in the brain, the 5,2A receptor. And that is the one that serotonin locks into and LSD and psilocybin, which chemically are similar to serotonin and not to mention mescaline, fits into that receptor and activates it. So, that sounds like an explanation for how it works. It isn't completely like, why should serotonin do something so different than what LSD does if they're involving the same receptor? There's some cascade of events after the receptor has been activated that produces the psychedelic experience and that we don't understand. And that's research, really interesting research. In fact, here at Berkeley, we, um, co-founded a psychedelic research center at Berkeley. And we want to look at some of these questions of basic science of how does it work? Because we haven't unfurled that mystery yet.
0: And you personally use the compounds in the Netflix show, How to Change Your Mind, which I strongly recommend everybody watch.
2: I was careful not to break the law on camera. I mean, that's really asking for trouble. But I did describe my experiences, and I did have a series of psychedelic experiences, some of them guided, some not, in the book on which the Netflix series is based, How to Change Your Mind. So I had several psilocybin experiences, one LSD experience, MDMA, something called 5-MeO-DMT, which is um, very obscure psychedelic that's made from the venom of the Sonoran desert toad. Yes. Who figured that out? Um, (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. How do you drink that?
2: No, you smoke it. That's the other thing. Somebody had to figure out that it's best. It's toxic. If you just consumed, it's toxic. But if you smoke it, the bad compounds go away. It's very powerful. I found it really destabilizing. The best thing about it was it only lasted about 10 minutes, but I'm not inclined to do that one again.
0: How did these experiences change you? Is there a Michael that was very different pre these experiences versus who you are as a person now, what you've learned about yourself?
2: You know, I didn't go into this, these experiences trying to fix something specific. Like I wanted to lose this quality or for me, it was curiosity. I wanted to learn something about my mind. I also wanted to, I was doing it honestly for my readers so I could describe this from the inside. But it did change me in interesting ways. I talked earlier about my relationship to my ego. I think that has been permanently shifted. I am less of a slave to my ego than I was. And that I'm very grateful for. It has given me a lot of gratitude in my life. It has made me appreciate love as the most important thing, more important than money, more important than achievement and success. Now, that's a kind of banal observation, but to really feel it and act on it is a pretty big deal. Some of what we learn on psychedelics is they're object lessons in the obvious sometimes, but sometimes the obvious is precisely what we've lost track of in our lives. So you have these experiences where you return with insights that could be written on a hallmark card, but just because they're banal doesn't mean they're not also profound. And that's certainly true about love and gratitude and awe, which you spoke about earlier. I think awe is such an important human emotion. We don't have enough of it in our lives. It tends to shrink our egos, actually. And There's very interesting research. If You ask people to draw themselves on a piece of graph paper before and after an experience of awe, they will draw themselves much smaller after the experience of awe. So it helps us get over ourselves and realize that there's something bigger out there. And psychedelics, one of the ways to think of them is as chemical means of inducing awe pretty reliably. Major awe, the kind of awe you might have if you scaled a rock face at Yosemite, it's a shortcut to awe, I would say.
0: And just give my listeners an overview of where we are right now with these bills that are in Congress and if there's anything they can do to advocate more for psychedelic treatment and the medication.
2: Yeah. So where we are is that states are leading the charge and they are gradually decriminalizing psychedelics, cities also. And you might look up a decriminalized nature, the national organization, and see what's going on in your city. At the federal level, you do have uh, these allies emerging in Congress, people like AOC, Cory Booker, Rand Paul, Earl Blumenauer, who is the congressman from Portland, has been a big supporter of some of this legislation.
0: Hi everyone, this is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming at you here from Washington, D.C. I'm very thankful to have been working with the Drug Policy Alliance throughout this year to introduce and work on several different amendments and pieces of legislation to make our lives better. And that includes things like moving money out of the DEA and into overdose treatment, programs, as well as really examining some of the ways that we can also decriminalize the use and study of psychedelic compounds for medicinal applications and future policies.
2: Keep an eye on what's going on in Oregon. I think that's really significant. They are right now designing the regulatory regime, figuring out how do you qualify a guide and license them. What do you look for in a grower of psilocybin mushrooms to make sure he's doing it right or she's doing it right? And next year, they're going to make this available, which is astounding. I mentioned also there's a ballot initiative in Colorado. There are two of them this fall. That's worth tracking. And, you know, see what's happening in your community around psychedelics. It's really a nationwide movement. And there's urgency around getting access to people with cancer who could really be helped. Not that it cures their cancer, but it cures their existential distress around their cancer. And that's just as important. And we have so little to offer people psychologically around cancer. We give people morphine at the end, but it dulls their minds. Psychedelics sharpens their minds and seems to remove people's fear, which is a what a blessing that is. The other thing is there's nothing for the activists to do, except keep an eye on the fact that the FDA is very close to approving MDMA. When that happens, we will need the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to change the scheduling. Right now, MDMA is Schedule 1. That's got the heaviest penalties. Uh, It means that a drug has no accepted medical use. Once a medical use is determined by the FDA, they should automatically reschedule it, but they may not. They haven't always done that, and so political pressure may need to be brought to bear on the DEA. Same for when psilocybin is approved, which is probably a few more years away. We're in the middle of trialing psilocybin for relief from depression, and the early signs are positive, but we still need bigger trials. But that's happening. It's happening all over the world right now. Supporting the research, people who have resources to support the researchers is really important. And keep yourself informed. One of the things we've done here at Berkeley, we just launched a resources website to give people a primer on psychedelics, educate them about the risks and the benefits. And if you go to psychedelics.berkeley.edu, all this information is available for free. There are fact sheets you can download. There are interviews with experts. There's a kind of encyclopedia of psychedelic compounds that tells you about how they work and their benefits and risks. There's great information out there. We also have launched a newsletter which can keep you on track of uh, activist issues, and that's called The Microdose, and it's on Substack. And that comes out twice a week. It's free, and that'll keep you up to speed on what's going on in Oregon, what's going on in Colorado, how you can get involved.
0: And finally, what gives you hope?
2: One of the reasons I worked on this issue is it's all about hope. We have a mental health crisis in this country, especially among young people. statistic I just learned last week is that among people under 30, only 7,500 died during the pandemic of COVID. That's out of a million plus. I don't know where we are, 1.1 million or something like that. So people under 30 didn't get hit that hard, but in this same period, 90,000 of them died either by suicide or overdose. These are deaths of despair. We are really struggling with mental illness right now. You add to that climate change.
0: And mass shootings.
2: Mass shootings, the fear that happens in schools. So we need new tools to address mental illness. The ones we have, SSRIs primarily, are not doing the trick for most people. And they have side effects people don't like. People put on weight. They lose their libido. They're very hard to get off. And they don't solve the problem. Here we have these tools, psilocybin and MDMA, that have the potential to relieve a great deal of human suffering. That's what gives me hope.
0: Thank you, Michael. You give me hope.
2: Thank you, Alyssa.
0: Thanks for being a part of the podcast.
2: My pleasure. It was great to be here. Thanks for your great question. We've all heard really scary things about psychedelics. They scrambled your chromosomes. They caused you to hop off of buildings. It was all terrifying. So I took a look at the true effects of these substances. I was very surprised at what I found. Mescaline, psilocybin, MDMA, LSD... For a lot of people, this was the bad and evil drugs. But the opposite is true. There are really people who could benefit. Can't wait to see what's going to happen. What if mental health problems like OCD, PTSD, alcoholism and depression could all be helped? I'm a fairly conservative, sober scientist, but I've seen it work. And this medicine here starts to help heal. my friends said don't do it psychedelic therapy has the potential to revolutionize mental health care
1: they grow in the land and you realize oh my goodness there's all of this i didn't know it's like a light bulb has gone off my story is the same story as millions of veterans where my story becomes unique is i took mdma three times it saved my life I really did short circuit this suicidal period that I was in it's not like magic bullet that everything's perfect
2: but just think how much human suffering could be relieved this is the tool for understanding the mind maria Sabina fue una mujer que por así le abrió puerta a todo el mundo This tension continues to grow. If the drug war ends, what's the peace look like? We're all striving to have good health and happiness. This medicine helped me stand on my own two feet. True science probes the very frontiers of human knowledge. And that's where psychedelic research is right now.
0: We have a mental health crisis in America. And with the collective global trauma of COVID, it's only getting worse. We have to break from tired, illogical, and harmful arguments against psychedelic compounds and open all potential avenues to fight this epidemic. We use some plants for medicine, but other plants are forbidden, and there is no clear reason why. Or that some chemical compounds created in laboratories are allowed and others are not. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about plants or chemicals that drive addiction or using any chemicals in ways that harm people. But psychedelics show so much promise as medicine and have such a long history. Why would we deny so much potential help to so many people? Why would we even try to do this? How can anyone claim denying that help or even research into that help is in any way the high moral ground. This is something that should be beyond politics. Democrats who claim to value people over profits should see this as an easy decision. The Republicans who claim to value small government and deregulation should see this as an easy decision. It's time for us to get out of the broken morality of Nixon and Reagan and into the 21st century with our policy on psychedelics. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate review, and spread the word. Sorry.